Thank you, Father. Our attention is on you and on your good news that you have given in your Son. And nothing in us is wired to believe that. Sin calls us to trust ourselves, to earn things, to earn your favor, to be worthy of your blessings. And you announce instead that it's all by grace. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen to the gospel. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You ever feel condemned? Ever feel ashamed? Listen. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I don't know if you caught the significance of that tense. Jesus died, that's history. Jesus rose from the grave, that's history. But it says, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, present tense. His death and His resurrection are historic. His intercession is present. That means when you felt the weight of your sin, if you're already in Christ, if you tore yourself down with guilt, shame, self-condemnation, at that moment and in every moment, Jesus is presently interceding, speaking to God on your behalf. So Paul asked, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, and here he quotes the Old Testament, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, the present-day experience of Christians in Paul's day was they were being hounded, persecuted, ostracized, and some of them were being murdered for their faith. And the question is, if they kill us, does that mean that we are unloved? We are forsaken by God. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Here's the answer, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In other words, even if they kill us, we win. Only grace can give you that assurance. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This morning we're wrapping up our series in the Psalms. We'll return to them later this year, but for now we'll pause in Israel's hymn book. But I want you to remember, wherever we land in Scripture, what this church does is announce to you the good news of Jesus Christ. We have wisdom and love to share, but more than that, we have the amazing announcement of good news. 
Not good advice, not good rules to follow so that someday God may accept you. Rather, the announcement that Christ has already died for sinners. He has already been raised historically from the grave in the presence of real people who were not interested in being persecuted or killed for a fraud of their own creation. It's a historic fact that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, and that gives you the assurance of eternal life and the ever-present assurance that God loves you. And because God has already acted and given in this way, there is nothing in all of creation that can separate you from God's love. And nothing in the culture, nothing in your heart apart from God wants to believe that. You want to earn it instead. People give, try to give us a freebie. What's the natural question? What's the catch? We're wired to earn, not to humbly receive. So anything you hear from this pulpit, if the person opening the Bible with you is faithful to God's message, he's not going to tell you to strive more and to be better so that God may someday love and forgive you. He's going to announce to you that God proactively has loved you when you were far from him, undeserving, when you were not searching When you were weak, the Bible says, at that time Christ died for us, the ungodly, so that we could have his love and his intercession and his presence this day and forevermore until we receive the fullness of the life that Jesus is. And it's not even that Jesus gives life. Colossians 3 says that Christ is our life. In other words, if you're placed in him, you have all the righteousness, all the good All the faithfulness, all the love, mercy of Christ is on your account, not because you deserve it, but because God is that good. And my concern more than ever, and maybe you'll hear it in the sermon today, is that we live in light of that. And for those of you who have been kind of in the orbit of the church, and I kind of like it, but I'm not too sure about this, that you would humble your heart, you would humble your life before the Lord who made you and loved you, and that you would trust Jesus as your Savior and follow Him every day of your life until someday you meet Jesus face to face and you know that I didn't do nearly a good job of telling you how good He was. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the good news that is offered to us in Christ. Help those, Lord, who are far from you, those who are straying from you this morning to come back to love and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been a while since I've counted, and I didn't take the time to count, which would have been an easy thing to do to tell you the story, but I think by the time I got out of seminary, I think I had been in 14 different schools. And that meant that I had to ask myself many, many times, who was going to stick up for me? Who was going to help me? In all these new schools, is the kid across the playground, is that a buddy or a bully? When I run into trouble, is anyone coming to help the, the new kid? And I grew up in Mexico. Is anyone coming to help the gringo, frankly, which is what (laughs) they often called me until I earned a few friends and they started calling me by my name. And it's a natural question when you're in a 
in any kind of trouble or uncertainty for you to ask yourself, who could possibly help you? Now, those who know me well will tell you that I have an uncanny ability, I get it from my father, to get myself into problems that are not common. I had an attorney in Mexico who would say simply this, with you nothing is easy, which is a wonderful thing to hear. Right, from someone who's trying to help you reside legally in the country. With you, nothing is easy. Well, thank you very much. My wife has said that, but that was pretty tough to hear from a guy you're paying to represent you. So, I've gotten myself into all kinds of trouble, sometimes trying to be helpful. Have you ever gotten yourself in trouble trying to be helpful? Happened to me, I think I was 15, and I grew up in the city of Chihuahua, Mexico, Pancho Villa's headquarters. High desert, and way out in the sticks, and I was fascinated by it because it was such a striking little piece of geography. It was a place called El Cerro de la Cruz, the Hill of the Cross. And it was just a few shacks, really, very, very modest homes dotting the top of this little spike out in the middle of this desert city. And as a kid, I was fascinated by it. Like, who lives there? It looks so rugged. It looks like the moon up there. And then we had a young single mom start attending our church. She somehow, one Sunday night, got herself there on public transportation all the way to the other side of the city. So my father offered to take her, the baby, in the giant diaper bag, along with another one of the national pastors, home. I wanted to go with because I wanted to see this famous place. And when we got there, it became apparent that this young, brave woman had hiked down this thing, because it wasn't a walk, it was a hike, with an infant and a diaper bag that was as big as she was. So, chivalry's not dead, it's merely wounded, so I thought I'll be helpful. She doesn't trust me with the baby, and that makes perfect sense to me, but I'll offer to carry the diaper bag. So the national pastor and I took off, young woman ahead of us, unencumbered, he very carefully cradling the baby, I with the giant diaper bag, and we made it there, saw her little house, and we're coming back down, and it's pitch dark. And we don't even know what dark is. If you've only lived in Southern California, you don't know what dark is. It's never dark here. Are you aware of this? You can pretty much read a book anywhere within 20 square miles at any time of the night. It's never dark here. I'm talking country dark. You can feel it like this is terrifying. I can hear the minor key piano playing before me. Somebody's bound to kill me out here in the wilderness and they won't find me for days kind of dark. But anyway, I digress. I tend to do that. I apologize. We're coming back down the hill and he got ahead of me. He was apparently more familiar pastor was more familiar with this uh, environment than I was. He got about 20 yards ahead. My dad was waiting in the pickup. And little tip from 15-year-old me to you, if you're ever walking out in the desert and suddenly you find yourself going uphill in soft dirt, you should ask yourself, why is there suddenly a lot of fresh dirt here? Can you guess? There's a big trench. That didn't occur to me. I went right up the soft dirt and right into the eight-foot-deep trench on the other side of the soft dirt. Now, I was about as tall when I was 15, 16 as I am now, and the thing was about two feet taller than I am. And helpfully, they had made the trench just wide enough to fit me. 
So I, hands in my pockets, because it was cold, I walked right up and like a horror movie, just disappeared into the hole. <laughs> if you've ever dropped a ballpoint pen between the seats in your car, that's kind of what it looked like. Just gone, <laughs> never be seen again. And because this is a trench, I kind of like a ruler, bop, 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 all the way down, right? Face back, face back, face back, face back. <laughs> Eight feet landed on my feet. Have you ever landed on your feet when you weren't expecting to fall? Can you guess what happened to me? Every bit of wind that God put in my lungs a moment earlier immediately went out. Did I notice, did I mention I had my hands in my pockets? So I've knocked every bit of wind out of myself. I'd done that before, so I knew I wasn't going to die, but I kind of felt like I might, and I kind of wanted to at a certain point. My hands are in my windbreaker. I'm scraped front and back, standing in the hole, and I decided I would call out for help. If you've ever knocked the wind out of yourself, you know that trying to call for help with no wind is a comical endeavor. It sounded like this. <laughs> I did that about three times. Pastor Leo was ahead of me. Leo! <laughs> Nothing. Couldn't hear me three feet away. So I heard him open the truck door, slam the truck door. Please notice I'm not with you. <laughs> Silence for a couple of minutes. Truck door opens. Bros! Eventually, my father and the other pastor created a two-man search party. They wandered all around me. I'm croaking. They can't hear me. It's the most maddening thing in the world. And had I had strength, I would have killed the pastor because when he finally saw me down there looking up with my scraped face and no wind in my lungs, he said, what are you doing down there? Sometimes when we're not patient, God denies us of opportunities to do justice by our own hand, right? I wanted to tell him I got a side gig as a ditch inspector, and the height on this one is fine. <laughs> the budget is tight. I check them by stepping into them. This appears to be the right height. But for a couple agonizing minutes, I found myself, and it's happened many other ways, some just as stupid and some just as hilarious, some rather heart-wrenching, where I've needed somebody else to come to my aid because I found myself in a situation where I literally could not get myself out of a problem. That's the setting in Psalm 115. You'll need your Bibles. If you didn't bring one with you, please find one near you in the seats, Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. That's the dedication, that's the initial request in this psalm, as I'm going to show you, and at a certain point, prepare yourself. Maybe you went to Mass many years ago and there were congregational responses, or you went to a liturgical church where the person in front would say something and you would say something back, we're going to do that eventually. But right in the beginning of Psalm 115, Israel is singing together, notice it's us, not I, 
Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. In other words, God, make yourself look good. Justify yourself. Draw attention to yourself. Keep respect. Keep your honor. Keep your own reputation. And as I'm going to show you in the very next verse, this is a psalm that is obviously written by a nation that is in trouble. They're actually being taunted by their surrounding neighbors. Verse 2, why should the nation say, where is their God? That's what Israel had to put up with at all points in their history. Some Bible scholars think that perhaps this psalm was written very late in the collection of 150 psalms. It might be written in the time where they have returned from captivity and they are restarting the nation. No way to be sure, but one thing to be sure, a tiny nation of people who claim to be the Lord's own possession because from Him will come Jesus, the Savior of the whole world, is continually surrounded by people of other beliefs with other gods who when things are going poorly for Israel say to them, where's this God you keep telling us about? We know where our gods are. In fact, we can wrap our hands around the representations of our God. We can take them, we can take them offerings. We've made them, we've fashioned images of our gods. Where's yours? Is he real? Doesn't seem to be. No better than your life is. But Israel's first request for God is in verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. And that first line is so countercultural to 21st century living. Because if there's anything that modern life has afforded all of us, it's to give our own name glory. I mean, businesses are now starting to include very carefully a selfie station where you can. And then you check, oh, no, forgot that's my bad side, okay? <laughs> and you can put filters on it. You ever have the shock of meeting someone you've only seen in a filtered photograph in real life? <laughs> wow, I thought you were 22, you're actually 78. This is a, <laughs> these filters are good, man. I thought for sure you were an Olympic hopeful, and no. Or what we've created in modern life is the ability to create, and people are calling it this, a personal brand. Brands used to be for large corporations with something to sell. Now we're being told, and it's infiltrated all through our culture, even if you haven't thought about it in those terms, you sell yourself, you present yourself. Through the magic of social media, you can meet people. Well, not really meet them. You can look at the carefully curated pictures of people who have millions of people following them, so-called, observing them for this single reason. They're good-looking. Eight million people, 20 million people looking at one man, one woman, and in a variety of poses and outfits with this single feature publicly displayed. I happen to look amazing. 
and then someone will make, as part of their personal brand, give you a tutorial on how you can create this look. Or, if you don't have $25,000 for a particular outfit, here's how you can go to Target and do it for $100 instead. <laughs> personal branding, personal presentation. It's nothing has changed, it's just the tools are more powerful. People have always been interested in their own reputation. Long before social media, as soon as there was a human heart and a human mind that could relate to God and other people, people turning away from God started caring about the glory of their own name. So Israel prays, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And here's the trouble they're facing. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Israel's in trouble. Israel is literally being taunted. Verse 2 is basically a schoolyard taunt saying, where's the God that's supposed to help you? Israel gives a confident response. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. And then they start reflecting about the neighbors around them. Everyone asks themselves when they're in trouble, when they need to move forward in life, who can help? And the nations have their answer ready, and the nation's answer is this, an idol can help us. Verse 4, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. You go, man, we're really stepping back in history here. Yes, we are. For almost all of human history, literal physical idolatry has been a key part of human worship. It's related to the ancient belief in magic where you can take things in the physical world to create a new reality, physically or spiritually. Idols were very important. The better the idol could be made, the more favor it would offer with the God who, whose image it represents. Man, I'm just not seeing the connection with my life. Well, if you grew up in 20th, 21st century America, and if your culture was very Western, perhaps you've never seen an idol, and probably most of you have never had one. They're all over the world. But let me ask you, do you think that there are still idols in the world today? even in sophisticated Orange County? Let's understand what we're talking about. Whether they are physical images or not, here's the biblical definition in my simple words. An idol is anyone or anything that takes God's rightful place in your life. That's what an idol is. Whether it has an image, whether it's artistically rendered, whether it's sculpted, as you could tell from the description here, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Whether it's something you can actually put your hands on or not, an idol is anything or anyone that takes God's rightful place in your life. On those terms, are there idols in the world? 
Yes. And in incredible abundance. And seeking after every human heart. You see, the, the center of Psalm 115 is Israel under persecution, being taunted by nations that are nothing like it, who follow ancient ways, who have not heard from the Lord themselves, saying, hey, where's your God? And if He's real, why isn't your life any better? Have you noticed how many times armies like ours have chased you? You noticed how many times we've taken some of your territory? How many times we've killed some of your people? Where's this God of yours? And it's a question that every person who is in relationship with God has to ask themselves. It's not an ancient question. It's a contemporary question, even for those of us who follow Jesus, who would agree with what I read in Romans 8, who say, by God's grace alone, I am in Christ. He is my Savior. And because He died on the cross, and because He rose from the grave, and because He is still even now interceding for me, I am convinced that nothing can separate me from the love of God. Even you, even I, feel the lure, the pull of idolatry. I know that's true because the last sentence in the Apostle John's first letter, a letter in which he wrote as an aged apostle to help Christians tell the difference between those who truly were following Jesus and those who were deceived and those who were pretending, the last line after telling them about the goodness of Christ his love for them, the love they should have for each other, the fullness of their forgiveness. It's all about Jesus and genuine Christianity. And that's maybe why the last line takes us as a bit of a surprise. 1 John 5.21 says this. Read it with me. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Those of you who are in God's family, you are God's beloved children. Your little kids in God's family, I've told you all about Jesus. Here's what you have to do now. You have to keep yourself from idols. And that's real for me. And that's real for you. This week I was greatly helped. Just yesterday, actually, it was rattling around in my mind that I had heard a book recommended, written by a woman named Elise Fitzpatrick. It's called Idols of the Heart. So, using this amazing technology that makes has changed the world, I clicked my phone about three times, and there's her book on my phone. Then I took another little flat screen and read about 20% of it. I'm not guessing. That's what the screen told me, that, how far I was in the book. It's a book about idolatry. Listen to Elise Fitzpatrick's definition of an idol. She said, if you're willing to sin to obtain your goal, or if you sin when you don't get what you want. Have you ever sinned when you don't get what you want? Even in anger? Even in resentment against God? Even in lament and hopelessness that life is not good, that God is not fair? Listen. If you're willing to sin to obtain your goal, or if you sin when you don't get what you want, then your desire has taken God's place, and you are functioning as an idolater. 
An idol is that thing, and it varies by person, and it varies by experience, and it varies by need, but an idol is that thing that calls out to you that it is worth your love, your attention, your honor, your best effort in place of God. Let's think a little bit. I got some very lively participation in the first service. Maybe you can keep up with them. Is there such a thing as American idolatry in our culture, this wonderfully diverse, up-to-the-minute speed of Twitter culture that we've created in the United States? Are there things that compete with God? Are there things that people love and trust and desire more than God? What are they? Political power, I heard over here. Money. Yes, money. We live in coastal Orange County. It takes an extraordinary amount of the stuff just to live here. And we love it. Because we can take pictures of the beach and send it to our friends back in Massachusetts. (laughs) Wish you were here. We built a sandcastle this morning. Money's necessary. It's needful. You'll starve without it. It's very easy to love it. So it will call for your attention, your desire, your best effort. It will call for you to hold, earn it and hold on to as much as you can of it like very few other things in the world. Some people have fallen in love with prestige If they can have the admiration, if men can have the respect of others, they will feel deeply satisfied and they're willing to sin. In other words, they're willing to hurt others, to disregard the rights and the needs and the rightful duty they have to other human beings to say nothing of their God just to make sure that they can have their way. May I suggest to you, parents, and this is unique to American culture, Not entirely, but we've specialized in it. Someone in the royal family said it years ago, jokingly. He said, what I admire most about the United States is how well parents obey their children. (laughs) May I suggest to you that family is an American idol? Let me just speak to the parents for a second as a fellow parent and a fellow struggler. I speak of parenting with fear and trepidation, with humility before my my kids, one of whom is here, and my wife, my partner in raising those two. Children can easily become an idol in the United States. And here's what that looks like. And if you're a child and your parents are here, Please hear this accordingly and appropriately in your season of life, students, children. The greatest desire for American parents, it seems, in the 21st century at least, is that that child would be happy. And God is not opposed to a child's happiness. But it's not the most important value. Parents, many Christian parents who once professed Christ 
are readily walking away from the truth of Jesus and the things that God has taught in his unfailing word simply to keep the favor and the friendship of their own children. They fear the rejection of their children. Now, God is not opposed to a child's happiness. But what matters much more than my happiness is my love and trust for the God who made me. Jesus was asked regarding the Hebrew Scriptures, which we're reading in the Psalms, what is the great commandment? And he said, it's to love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's why God gave us children, to teach those children through example, sacrifice, and courage to love the Lord above anyone and everything. But at the very moment where culture and sinfulness and selfishness test our allegiance, too many parents are willing to quickly retreat from what they know is the truth regarding Jesus and regarding God's Word so that their, parent, their children will continue to approve of them. Being cool to your kids is a losing bet, parents. That line keeps moving. You'll never be able to keep up. Far better that you would point them, even at the cost of disagreement, even at the cost of tears, far better that you would point them back to Jesus. Students and younger people, it's true for you as well. If you continue to stand for Jesus in our increasingly secular and increasingly hostile to spiritual truths, culture, you will someday stand alone. Because Jesus was narrow. There's this old cliche, they love Jesus, not the church. Now certainly the church has given a watching world much to criticize, much to condemn, frankly. But if you listen to Jesus, you'll find that Jesus is narrow. The road back to God is as narrow as Jesus Christ himself. Shortly before dying, shortly before his willing arrest to go to the cross, Jesus said this to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is so narrow and intolerant. Do you hear it? And here's the 21st century offer. If. You want to follow Jesus, good for you. Just don't tell us he's the only way. Here's the word picture. God is sitting on some, type, some sort of mountain far from man's vision. And there are many roads leading up that mountain. Some coming up from the other side of the mountain that you will never see or know or walk. But the good news is they all lead to the same place. And if you'll just choose a path. And start on it, eventually you'll reach the top and you will meet the God of your understanding. So prayed a man before a presidential inauguration, O God of our many understandings. Listen, Jesus acted in history so that we would know definitively who God is. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he validated it and he vindicated that radically narrow truth by dying on the cross and taking his own life back from the dead as promised. If he did that, he's worth living for and dying for. If he didn't do that, it's all a farce and we should sell the property and go home immediately repenting to ourselves and to others that we ever believe such a lie. That's the claim of Christ. 
And the biblical announcement is not that all roads up the mountain lead to the same place. The biblical announcement is much better. That God has come down from the heights, walked among us, died in our place so that he could take us back up to God's home. That's the truth. And if you're in junior high, high school, college, if you're a young professional in America now, you say those sorts of things, they'll come after you. They'll Twitter shame you. And it'll be over in a few hours. The taunt of Psalm 115, why should the nation say, where is their God, is relevant today, and the temptation is rather than trusting God to start trusting one of those idols. But look at the warning. Verse 4, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Verse 8 is massive. Those who make them become like them and so do all who trust in them. Do you get that? If you trust an idol, you'll end up like that idol dead. The only one who can give you life is the Lord who made you and saw you lost in sin and came at the cost of his own life to bring you back so that you could have eternal life. If you trust any idol, you will become like the idol, lifeless. So Israel is told, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, those are the priests. Trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, that means anyone in the congregation, including foreigners who live in Israel. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Here's those verses. And you notice in the second line of all of those couplets, The pronoun's a little weird. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Why does it say there? Because this is a communal song. They are to sing this together, and I'm convinced based on the literary structure, this is a reader response kind of idea so that Israel could remind themselves, all of us are priests and anyone who's in the nation, what we all have to do is trust the Lord. So, this might take you back to childhood in a liturgical church, but let's do something ancient, shall we? Let's read Scripture together. I'll read the first line of each one of those couplets. You read the second. Did that make sense? Yeah. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is your help in the o house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. The promise of Psalm 115 is that God will bless anyone who trusts Him. Look in verse 12. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. And He draws those three big circles again. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. You say, I just got here. I barely understand a word you're saying. I just know this much. I know that I've sinned. My conscience tells me that much. 
I remember with guilt and shame the things that I've done and the thoughts that fill my mind, but I've done this much. I've asked Jesus to save me, and a change has come over me. If you know that much, please hear the promise at the end of this, at the end of verse 13. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. Whether you're a child and you barely know God, or you are advanced in age and you know Him very well, old and young, advanced and mature and godly, or just getting started with God, the Lord will bless all who revere Him. Why is this so repetitive? Because that's the literary point. God is using a literary device to make a simple point to you. If you know the Lord, trust the Lord. That sounds really simple, doesn't it? But that's the whole battle. Think about what you say when you, well, think about what we've done. This is a public worship service, which is nearly over, by the way. Take heart. You know what a pastor, you know what is true when a pastor says that? It means, he means well, okay? He he can see the end. We've been in a public worship service. You've been singing songs about God and to God. Do you believe anybody was listening? We've prayed. You've prayed. Did you think anybody was there? See, that's the battle. The nations around Israel is saying, where's your God? And Israel's faith is this. We don't have idols because our God is in heaven and He does anything He pleases. Whatever He wants to do, that's what He'll do because He made the world and everything that is in it, including us, including you. And Israel is singing against idolatry and saying, God will bless anyone who knows the Lord so long as they trust Him. And that's the key. Most of you have come to church because you know the Lord. The question is whether you're going to trust Him. Some of you have come to church seeking Him, and you're not sure if He's there or not. I can assure you that the authority of God's Word, validated and expressed in the experiences of countless people of all nations through all ages, including my own little life, that God is real and His gospel is true and good. If you've come seeking God, He is here in the person of Jesus Christ. He awaits eagerly with the joy that was set before Him the moment you will humble yourself enough to trust Him and turn yourself over to Him. But the vast majority of you have come because you know the Lord and the rhythm of Psalm 115 tells you over and over and over again, since you know Him, trust Him. If you trust Him, He will bless you. Verse 14, may the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth He has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. So, if you know the Lord, trust the Lord, no matter who goes against you, no matter how few go with you, because God will bless 
anyone who trusts him. The battle is with your idols, and you will always find your idols wherever you struggle to trust the Lord. It might be your parenting, it might be your job, it might be your marriage, it might be your singleness, it might be your friendships, it may be all of those things at once. In fact, before we're done, let's take a moment of quiet reflection, do a little writing. We've agreed that there are idols. We've agreed that there are things in the world and in our hearts that call out for our trust. Don't look on your neighbor's paper. We have enough counseling meetings already in this church. Our counselors are busy enough. But take a moment of humble self-awareness. And on that sheet of notes, would you please write down the things that you know it's hard for you to trust the Lord with? The things that call out for your loyalty, your devotion above God? Just take a moment and name them. you need a tip that was helpful to me in my own examination? Where do you run to for comfort? Aside from God, the things He's provided. What do you ease your pain with aside from the Lord? Okay, thank you for participating in that. There's a war in Psalm 115. The question has been asked, who is going to help us? And our answer is, our sovereign God can help us. Verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Verse 15, may you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. And here's the best part. The best assurance we have in this psalm is actually in the first verse. Remember, Israel said, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. In other words, God, we're being persecuted. We're the ones in trouble, but our request is not that you would do things for our sake, but that you would help vindicate yourself, that you would help us for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. This is the gospel, church. You never approach God on the basis of your own merits. You never say to the Lord, certainly I've earned this. You can never say to the God who made you, certainly you owe me now. He doesn't. Ever. And this runs right through the Bible. When we read a few weeks ago the beloved Psalm 23 and we considered the image of God as our good shepherd, David said, he leads us in paths of righteousness. Do you remember the rest of it? For his name's sake. In other words, he loves you, but he loves you for his own sake because he sovereignly came down from heaven, died on the cross so that you could have his own name, so that you could speak to God not only as creator, 
So that you could address him not only as his servant, though you are, but so that you could speak to the God of the universe as your beloved, perfect, tender, compassionate, heavenly Father. And because he has taken you into his arms and he has welcomed you at the cost of the death of his own son as his beloved daughter, as his beloved son, it's his name, his reputation, his glory that's on the line. That's why he will answer you and that's why he will take care of you when you trust him. Daniel said it like this. We do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Did you get it? Every time I go to God in prayer, there's always a quiver of doubt. Will he listen to the likes of me? And at that moment, I'm engaging in idolatry of myself. Can I get his attention? You know who always has the Father's attention? His beloved Son, who is enthroned in heaven and seated at the right hand of God, according to Romans, even now interceding for me. Listen to him, Father, for my sake. You know how much confidence that should give you? You know how real the pull of idolatry is? The Lord showed me this week that I lost something along the way. And this confession, really a request for forgiveness. As I prayed for you this morning, it dawned on me that I don't pray with the desperation I once did. God has been good, and as God has blessed us so much, it's gotten comfortable. And I got used to his blessings. Listen, parents, grandparents, and students, we live in a world filled with idolatry. Students, we love you. I know I'm a weird old guy and I could be your dad if you're in this room. As a student, I really could. And this may seem strange, but those of us who have walked with the Lord a little bit longer, we've seen the culture change around us and change around you, and we see how quickly and easily and attractively the idols of the world are placed right in front of you, begging you to trust them, and please don't do it. God convicted me that I don't pray with intensity and brokenheartedness as I once did for the generations that follow mine, that are increasingly away from the Lord and in their idolatry, parents and grandparents are increasingly comfortable with their own children not following after Jesus, and it's a wreck because all who stop trusting in the Lord and choose an idol instead will end up as that idol, lifeless. Better that we should take the last few words of this psalm. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. In other words, we only have a brief time on this earth, but verse 18 says, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Our confidence is that God will hear us on the basis of His goodness is not our own. So please, Crosspoint, Christian, if you know the Lord, here's what you're supposed to do. Trust Him. Trust Him how? In every area of life. Let me be practical. Some of you will go to jobs tomorrow that will drain you mentally. And some of you will go to jobs that not only that, they're beginning to crush you physically. 
and you feel spiritually lonely because you know if you told others of your faith in Jesus Christ, at the very least, there would be a little chill there, you fear. What do you do in that work environment? You trust Him. You reject idolatry. You love Him and you do the best job you can because you are a child of the King and His representative in that place. And out of deep love for Him, you put in a good word for Him. You speak of Him not because you're brave, but because He's good and He's worth other people knowing. Some of you will go into friendships, into jobs, into schools, into environments of all kinds where the secular idolatry that will be offered to you is this. Go be a Christian on the weekend. To go do your thing, if you enjoy that, if that helps you be a better person, certainly not for me, but if it helps you be a better person, good. Nobody's telling you you can't. No, the Christian who trusts the Lord rejects that and makes him Lord of all of life. So if you want to hear this thing that just got started yesterday, because God was sick for a few days and had more time to think and read, if you want to hear one Christian's vision of this church, it would be of people who are in such reverence, such awe of the Lord, that they would trust Him in everything. That it would make them the kinds of parents who are determined to teach their children to trust the Lord, whatever the kids think of it. That it would make children and students bold followers and boldly loyal and loving to Jesus, whether you had parental support or encouragement at school or not. That it would make people who are financially not givers on occasion when you happen to remember or when there is a special need or an appeal, but that you would remember that your job and your income, whatever it is, great or small, is a gift to you from the Lord that you have resources only for a short time and that you will take a generous portion of that and give it to the Lord, to His kingdom and to His church every time you are so blessed. That you would steward your health and the time that you have not to be self-indulgent and do what everybody else does, but to ask your God in heaven based on how you've saved me and what you've taught me, how am I to bless the people around me? That's what it looks like in this world to trust the Lord rather than to serve an idol. And that's my invitation to you. That in a world filled with idols that taunts you and asks you, where is your God? You will say, my God is in heaven. He does everything he pleases. And on the basis of his own good character, I will trust him and I will obey him. Let's pray. If you don't know Jesus as Savior, my specific heartfelt invitation to you right now is that you would turn to him and turn yourself in. And say to him to the best of your understanding that he has given you this morning that you understand your need of him. That you understand you're far from him, guilty before a holy God, but you trust Jesus to be Savior. You'll take him on as your forgiver and your boss. If you do that this morning, all I would ask simply is that you would take another step of faith toward us and just give us the favor of returning that card that's in your bulletin.
let us know that you've trusted the Lord today. It doesn't make it official. It doesn't make a bit of difference spiritually. But it's a simple way of confessing to someone else, of announcing to someone else, yes, today I have trusted Christ as my Savior. And you'll find a family here that will love you and pray for you and encourage you, teach you how to spend time with God in prayer and with His open word. And earlier we listed our idols. Christian, would you take a minute to burn those idols down in the presence of your God? Those fears, those angers, those sins that are all the red flags saying that you're trusting the idol, you're desiring the idol rather than the Lord. Confess those to him. Turn those over. And say to the Lord, I will trust you. You are my God. You are in heaven. You do everything you please. I will trust you and I will praise you. And Father, may this final song, may this offering, may the decisions that your people are making, may the repentance, Lord, of someone who is turning away from themselves, their religion, their traditions, their moral code, whatever they've had in place of you, Jesus. Give them the grace to say, yes, Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. I believe you as my Savior. And to go public in a small way telling us that they've done just that. Receive this worship, this giving. It's for you. It represents trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.